0: What's up, TRP Podcast listeners? Thank you for checking in with us. We are on week eight of our sermon series, James the Sage. Week eight. Woo! We are making some headway in this book. I know, I know. We've only looked at one chapter so far, but we're going to start moving at a pretty good clip once we've gotten through all of the introductory stuff that that James is letting his readers know about, and now we are heading into more of his wisdom teaching, I guess you could say. But in this teaching, we're talking about James chapter 2, the first 13 verses. So I'm going to read a good handful of verses to you here, and I would just implore you and encourage you to to track with me because this one's going to be tough, I think. There's a lot of practical application for us in our lives and how we seek to follow Jesus. So here the words of James from chapter 2 of his letter, beginning in verse 1. It says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. but you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The word of God for the people of God. Now, Luke Timothy Johnson describes James 1 as an epitome of the work as a whole. That is, he believes the first chapter introduces many of the themes that reappear throughout the letter. And one of those themes clearly concerns the economics of the Jewish Christian community. We've mentioned this a lot in an attempt to gain a foothold in our reading and application of the letter, but here we go again, and just indulge me. The audience that James has been writing to is suffering economic injustice or economic exploitation. Throughout chapter 1, I've been making the case that for some community members, this reality may have led them to respond with violence, to take vengeance into their own hands, to forsake the command to love God and love their neighbor. And James has been addressing this, pleading with them, in fact, to not be swayed in this direction. And now, surprisingly, as we turn the chapter from chapter 1 to chapter 2— This economic plight has resulted not in violent action, not even in strong language, but in favoritism for the rich. James recreates a scenario where a man comes into your meeting. Actually, the Greek here is your synagogue. And this person is wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. And a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in if you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, you sit here, you sit in a seat of honor, you sit in the front of the house where everyone can see, where all eyes can be on you because you look the part. You seem to be one who we need to aspire to be. And if the poor man comes in and the attendants say, you you, you need to sit in the back, you need to, you need to be out of... Sight, out of mind. In fact, here, uh, maybe you should even sit on the floor by my feet. If that happens, James says, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, there's all sorts of questions we can ask about this scenario that James is casting here for his audience. For example, what is meant by the synagogue? Is this a Christian gathering or a joint gathering of Jewish followers and Christians? Is it meant for spiritual edification, or as some commentators propose, is this a legal proceeding? Is the person that is being brought to the front, is there some sort of a a bribe involved here perhaps? Is the rich person a believer or just an observer of what's happening in this meeting? Now, some of these questions, they're too hard to answer with certainty, and that's often the case within biblical interpretation. Also, some of these questions, they take us too far afield from James's real concern, which seems to be about the community's actual behavior, regardless of the setting, regardless of the religious status of the people involved. James's point seems to be quite simple. To show favoritism is antithetical to following Jesus. To privilege some people over others is antithetical to the gospel. And yet, this seems to be what is happening. This seems to be the thing that James is addressing, not because it's a hypothetical scenario, but because this sort of favoritism has actually taken root within the community that he is addressing. In fact, one New Testament scholar, we've cited him quite often in this series, his name is Scott McKnight, he observes that to frame this scenario as a hypothetical situation, to frame it as a question as uh, the NIV translates it, it lets the audience and it lets us off the hook, like it hasn't been happening, like they or we aren't guilty of acting this way. McKnight writes, James wants his readers to be on the hook. He wants them to to be seen for all they are doing in order to shame them into reform. Now clearly there's some there's some cultural differences between the audience that James is writing to. This is uh, an honor and shame based culture. I'm not attempting to shame any of us, but I do want us to look into the mirror and think about our own conduct. Now before we get there though, let's let's continue in this first century Jewish Christian world. And think about this for a second. If if James's audience is suffering economic exploitation, which seems to be the case, then why in the world would they show favoritism to those who are oppressing them, to the rich, to the plousios in the Greek? Why not just throw them out as soon as they walk in, as soon as they see the gold rings and the fine... Clothes, because these are the people that potentially have been oppressing them, who have been exploiting them, who have been the benefactors of this economic injustice that is letting the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. James even reminds his audience in very pointed terms. He says, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are, are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? And here we can see uh, a scenario in which wealth is aiding a certain demographic of people within legal proceedings. Right, so they can potentially bribe the judges. They can, uh, in, in our context, you can afford the best uh, attorneys. You can uh, just ca- sort of work the system in that way, and it might not be so dissimilar in the first century. James continues: Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? Are they not the ones who are trashing Jesus and the followers of Jesus and attempting to uh, place themselves in higher seats of authority? in light of this rogue movement that's following a homeless Jewish rabbi why then in this community why then would the rich be shown favoritism it doesn't make sense and to be honest i have no idea and really no commentators a- addressed the-, the why question probably because you can't dig into the intent of the author in this way and recreate that sort of scenario most of the time but I would submit to us an obvious reason. This is human nature. It's what we do. We, we rank and file. We, we fawn over those who we believe to be in a separate socioeconomic bracket, a higher socioeconomic bracket. We, we fawn over those who we believe are prettier or smarter or more qualified, over those who are more powerful or well-resourced or connected. We, we characterize and we compare, we judge, we play favorites, and in the process we often diminish our own worth and the worth of those we have judged. In the example given by James, a wealthy guest is given a place of prominence, and we don't know why. It could be the opportunity that's involved uh, to gain status, to gain relief, to gain support, financial or otherwise. In the same example, a poor visitor, a visitor who in all likelihood probably looked a lot like the ones who were choosing seats, this visitor is relegated to a place of dishonor. The worth of the rich person Is exalted and the worth of the poor person is greatly diminished, even if what that communicates is something that's also true about the one judging. By the actions of the community here, they have demonstrated how they view the people involved. It's hierarchical, there are clear winners and losers. These are not all people created in the image and likeness of God. And as James notes, All of this stands in sharp contrast with what it means to follow Jesus, who calls us to love indiscriminately. James writes, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, which is love your neighbor as yourself, then you are right. You are doing right if you follow this. But if you show favoritism, he says, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. James keeps coming back to this royal law in his letter, this idea that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. And certainly he got this from Jesus. Remember, Jesus is the sage that James is following. James is internalizing the teachings of Jesus to disseminate those teachings to uh, his diverse audiences in a way that makes sense to them. This is why James throughout his letter is not citing Jesus necessarily, but the wisdom that Jesus has bestowed upon his followers is so uh, has so seeped into his bones that he he can't do anything other than repackage the teachings of Jesus, So so certainly he got this teaching from Jesus who, remember, when he was asked what the most important law was, he replied with, love the Lord your God with everything you have. The Shema, this, this core teaching of the Jewish faith found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. But then Jesus also adds to that a text from Leviticus 19 that says, love your neighbor as yourself. You know the old adage how uh, They will know, the people who are not Christians will know that we are Christians by our love. James seems to think that's how it should be. But sadly, this goes out the window when the community saw the rings and the robe. We've said this often, but it bears repeating. Our situation is very, very, very different than James's original audience. We are not economically exploited. We do not face economic injustice. Now, that's not to say that these things don't happen in our world, but for the most part, the average listener, I would say, this is not their story. Yet, I'm not so sure that if this scenario happened, if it would work out much differently than how James is describing it. Because we too are captivated by wealth. We too are seduced by power. Even if those holding wealth and power work to put others at a disadvantage, even if we already have substantial wealth and power, we are still seduced by these things. So when someone comes into our assembly whether that's a church setting or something broader, something like work, or uh, even the bar where we are, the restaurant where we are, and we see someone of, of prominence, we are seduced by the image that they cast. But it's also clear that it's not just these things that that draw out our admiration and our impact uh, on relationships that, that we have. It's not just wealth and power that, that impacts that. So I'd like you to consider for a second, wherever you are, if you're running around the block, if you're listening in your car, if you're just sitting at your computer, whatever it is that you have going on, what standard do we base our favoritism? I, I want to throw out a couple, four instances here for you. Is it is it shared political allegiance now we're we're in a very weird place in our uh, history, in in our moment as a as a nation. We have an election coming up, and this is the same every four years. But it seems like coming into this one, there's a, a bit more weight to it, uh, a bit more polarization to it I don't know if this is the effects of social media I don't know if this is effects of the quarantine and us just kind of sitting at home behind our computers or on our smartphones I don't know if this is the distance that we felt or or what it is if it's just the nature of the candidates that that we're voting on but if someone says out loud who they're voting for in a few weeks and that person is not our preferred candidate do we judge them do we discriminate against them do we immediately characterize who they are and cast a, a narrative about their life? Or if someone shares a meme on Facebook that we think is is terrible, it's, it's misleading, it's not the truth, it's slanderous, if we see this happening, do we, do we write that person off? Do we unfollow them? Do we cut off contact? Is that the end of the, the potential relationship? Can we get beyond the political allegiance of the person across the table? Or is that the end of the relationship? Do we discriminate? Do we show favoritism to the people who agree with us? It's it's the same about shared theological beliefs. And here, I'm a pastor. Okay, so I'm I'm kind of paid to sit in an office and read really heady theological books, I'm also very introspective and analytical, and sometimes uh, I make up things that I believe are happening in the world, not in in, an insidious sort of way, but I'm just kind of in my own head. And I think that people think about theological beliefs maybe more than than they really do, Uh, but how similarly do we need to think in order to be friends? Do we need to agree on, on all the things or just some of the things? And if it's just some of the things, then, then which ones do we need to agree on? If I tell you that I'm a theistic evolutionist, if I tell you that, that I agree with uh, you know a large degree of scientists who would say the earth began in this sort of way, but I also attribute God as the one who begins that process and oversees that process, what are you thinking about me? Is that the end of, of the relationship? Are there things that we need to agree on, and this, in, this is one of those things? If I tell you that I'm affirming of LGBTQ Christians, are you, are you judging me? Is that the end of this? It, it ha, have I gone too far in, in that? Because you read Paul in a very different way. Is that the the sort the the litmus test for who's in and who's out? If I tell you that I think the American church has been complicit with racism for a very long time, and we need to work to change that, are are we going to be okay? Because I, I think that there's some issues that we might need to to work out, and maybe you don't see those same things. Are we going to be able to be in relationship? Now, it's interesting that when I was I was writing this, I went with these. Uh, very polarizing examples, but let's turn them on their head for a second because I think it's just as uh, probable that for people that might align with those sorts of views to cast stones at ones who are unable to be in relationship with folks who think differently than they do, who who maybe think more progressively or more liberally than they do, I think it's it's very likely the case that it's difficult for the more progressive people to track with the more conservative people. For example, if, if I state it like this, if I tell you that I'm a literal six-day creationist, what are you thinking about me? Or if I tell you that the way that I read Paul does not allow me to affirm LGBTQ relationships, are you judging me? Or if I tell you that the American church has been working against racism for some time, are, are we going to be okay? Okay. See, I, th- I think that either way that you take this, we, we show real, a real inclination to, to judge our interlocutors, to judge the people across the table, and then divorce relationship that we have with them to show favoritism to the people that think like we do. And this is, this is problematic. But what about some other bases upon which we, we have our favoritism? What about shared intelligence or, or intellect? And this is related to the things that I was just saying here. But is this the metric that we use? Do we judge people who aren't as educated as we are? This one's really stupid, but shared sense of style. Do we judge people and and show favorites by how certain people dress? And I'm not going to put this past us to be this, um, this materialistic, I think it's, it's human nature for us to see someone, to see how they're presenting themselves, and then to make immediate judgments upon them and upon whether or not we might even be able to get along with them. We show favoritism to the people who are really stylish and who are on trend and who look good. What about a shared sense of humor or a shared Spotify playlist or a shared Netflix queue? I was having a conversation the other day with, with someone, and I was confessing my love for Cobra Kai, uh, which is a spin-off series about Johnny Lawrence, the bad guy in the movie The Karate Kid, and how his life has sort of um, developed over time. And I, I love The Karate Kid. It's one of my favorite movies of all time, so I was really intrigued with this series. And in a conversation I was having where I was confessing my my admiration and my love for this. Netflix series. It actually started on YouTube, but we won't get into that. It, it, I could tell very quickly that they just weren't tracking with me. And it's so stupid, but there's something inside me. It's like, well, I don't know if this is really going to work because we don't see eye to on, eye on entertainment. We have all sorts of measurements upon which we base our favoritism. And at the core, here's the deal. At the core, they are all at odds with following Jesus, because they all limit the ways that we love, the ways that we treat our neighbor, the ways that that we care for and protect and provide for our neighbor. Now, if you're anything like me, if you're sitting here listening and and you're an analytical person and you're a questioning person, then perhaps at this point you wanna you wanna pause and you wanna think about some some big macro level. Ideas Maybe even you have just some practical questions about how this works out in in real life because it can very quickly uh, devolve into me saying, "Love everyone, accept everyone, and also accept their ideas as the same, tolerate everyone and affirm everyone's ideas, even if those ideas are really harmful. We can go back to the theological beliefs for a second. There's there's things that that we disagree with with people and sometimes those disagreements are are vehement. We are very passionate about the things that we believe in. I understand how that can be a barrier to relationship, but it's when we start to diminish the worth and the human dignity of the person who disagrees with us where things get problematic. I'm certainly not saying that we need to be wishy-washy on the things that we believe. So you might have practical questions like, well, okay, this is all great, whatever, like royal law of love, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, that's fine. But what about white supremacists? What about heretics? which I won't go on record here. I think that word gets used pretty sloppily these days, but, but what about people that, that don't agree with me theologically? What about people who are unsafe? What about people who put our community at risk? What about people who are self-interested and power-hungry and they're really only out for their own gain? What What do we do with those people? How do we love them as ourselves? What does it look like for us not to diminish their inherent worth and dignity? What does it look like for us to see them as image bearers of the Most High God? And honestly, bad pastor confession, I'm not sure how to answer that. But I will propose this as a potential way forward. In the story that Jesus tells about the Good Samaritan, remember the whole bit about uh somebody's beaten on on the jericho road and a couple people pass by and then a samaritan shows up and and gives this person the care that that they need okay um in that story the good samaritan cares for someone who who was beaten and seemingly unconscious it's not as if the good samaritan was giving this person a seat of power on the board of a local nonprofit organization. We we don't know we don't know that. We don't know how the differences of ideologies played out other than the good samaritan acted on the basis of a shared human dignity and he loved his neighbor as an image bearer of the most high god and provided for his neighbors needs cared for him indiscriminately as a human being, nearly dead, who needed health care. We don't know if the person deserved it, but quite frankly, that's not the point of the story. And I think that we can start here. I want to go on record and say, I don't think that loving our neighbor means that we sacrifice all of our scruples. I don't think it means we allow hate and abuse and violence to have a place in our community. I don't think it means we put our family's safety at risk. I don't think it means we tolerate ideas and actions that are antithetical to the gospel. If God is for the poor, which we see here in chapter two, verse five, if God is for the poor, then so are we. And if we are not the poor, then we have some hard thinking about what that looks like for us to engage in that work. If God is against economic exploitation, then so are we, which means we have some really hard questions to answer about our uh, practices of, of buying things. If, if God is against discrimination and prejudice, then so are we. And I'm always hopeful that that influences our theological commitments as well to see how Jesus responds to people on the margins and the outskirts and how how that should influence how we respond to people on the margins and the outskirts, the people who are actively discriminated against, the people who uh, who we have prejudice against, perhaps. And we need to take a hard look in the mirror about how we perpetuate those sorts of actions and align ourselves with the movement of God. But I also, I do wonder this too, that when we start launching into these questions about, well, what about this guy? What about that situation? Or what about these beliefs or that beliefs I wonder if these questions that, that we ask are our version of the question that led to Jesus's telling of the parable of the Good Samaritan in the first place. Remember, when Jesus cited uh, the Shema and Leviticus as as the two laws that that sum up the entire law love the lord your god with all your heart mind soul and strength and love your neighbor as yourself these texts from Deuteronomy and and Leviticus the legal expert pushes back against Jesus and his use of Leviticus and says okay well i mean that's fine jesus but but who's my neighbor who am i really supposed to love this is a qualifying question that he's asking maybe to to get to get himself off of the hook here and I don't know this for sure but perhaps when we ask similar qualifying questions about well what about this or what about that maybe we too are trying to get off the hook of doing the hard thing which is loving people or at least learning what it looks like to love people who we don't respect or trust whose ideas we don't tolerate, whose discrimination we are not participating with. James concludes in this way, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. And it's a warning that we should take to heart. So maybe at the conclusion of this, maybe what we do is we assess how we fail in not showing favoritism. Maybe we assess the reasons or the bases upon which we show favoritism. What are the things that we identify with not only to allow people into our circles, but to keep people out? What are those things? And do we have work to do to not be a people who show favoritism? Maybe what we do is we ask the Lord to show us these things, and maybe also we address them. Because if we continue to rank and file, if we continue to compare and contrast, if we continue to to rate ourselves and others, then we continue to diminish the image of God in our brother and sister. Instead, may we work to keep the royal law of love may we work to love our neighbor as ourselves